I'm Brandon Ayers. I'm from the cornea service at Wills Eye Hospital in Philadelphia. And with me is Constance Okeke from Virginia Eye Consultants. Hi, I am uh, uh, Constance Okeke. Uh, you can also call me Connie. I work at Virginia Eye Consultants in Norfolk, Virginia. I'm a glaucoma specialist and cataract surgeon. Okay, Brandon, when you're treating your cataract patients, what would you say your current treatment strategies are for patients who are seeking some type of spectacle dependence and vision where they want all distances corrected? Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question. And I think that nowadays there's almost an option in some way, shape or form for almost every patient. So the process starts at the front desk where the patients turn in their, their questionnaire. And then that moves to the, the technical staff. The technician is then going to bring that patient, look at the questionnaire, and already get an idea as to what type of implant this patient may be a candidate for. And as they're going through the diagnostic testing, they're already starting to mention things like, hey, you may be a good candidate for a toric lens, or you might be a good candidate for that new trifocal, or whatever technology we're currently using. And that starts to plant the seed into the patient that, you know, there's more than one type of implant with cataract surgery, and those implants may do different things as far as my spectacle independence after the surgery. And that way, when I walk into the room, they already know that there's more than one option, and I don't have to introduce this whole idea of there's more than one implant for different patients, and you, they may be a candidate for a premium or better lens. In fact, now we start with the, the premise that almost everybody can have a multifocal or some kind of presbyopia correcting implant. And unless we find a good reason why they shouldn't do it, or they just plain old don't want it, then we won't do it for them. And that would even include patients now that have mild, and I would stress mild pathology, whether, you know, in your case, it's somebody with mild glaucoma, but maybe very few visual field changes, or maybe just a little bit of an ERM. Nothing that's going to degrade their vision uh, significantly, but just a touch where maybe we would be concerned about putting a diffractive IOL in. Now we're using a non-diffractive EDOF lens that seems to be a little bit more forgiving in those patients who have very mild uh, pathology. But I would really stress that in all of these lenses, they work better in patients who have very healthy eyes. But we can get away with a little bit of cheating in those patients with very, very mild pathology, whether it's in the nerve or the macula with the non-diffractive EDOF lenses. So basically, we, we gather all the information, we look at our diagnostics tests, and we talk to the patient, gathering their needs as to what they would like to do after surgery. And then we try to match that with an implant that's going to do uh, what they're asking us to do. I think that the experience is um, very similar to ours in terms of having our patients ask uh, questions, uh, being asked questions to get a sense of where they are and what their desires are. My patient population is a little bit different because it's very much glaucoma. Uh, the majority of patients have some level of glaucoma, whether mild, moderate, or severe. Um, some of them might be ocular hypertensives or glaucoma suspects, but um, there's a good range do have pathology. Um, I've been using advanced technology lenses for a while, and up until about a year ago, I really did have to just focus on the very mild, um, nearly no pathology on their visual fields, maybe just um, within their, uh, their findings. 
Um, but I've been able to expand it uh, significantly uh, with the use of the, the new technology with the non-diffractive lenses. Um, and I've been very ecstatic and excited about being able to extend the range of offerings to my patients and still be able to get them satisfied in terms of being able to have that extended range of vision and happy because where they can see, they can see well. And uh, a lot of that has to do with how we set it up and how we allow them to know what to expect uh, to help them uh, get those really great outcomes. Yeah, so Connie, I think that's a, a good point. And now with all of the new diagnostic tests, we, we have so many different ways of looking at patients and matching the, the correct power or correct implant to the patient's eye, I think is getting easier and easier with advanced diagnostics. But you don't only have to match it to the patient's eye, you have to match it to the patient's brain and what they expect, what they think things are gonna look like after cataract surgery. So how do you manage those expectations in your patients, especially when it comes to presbyopia correcting uh, IOLs, and, and how do you counsel them in your preoperative consultations? So when it comes to my glaucoma patient population, which is where I, I serve patients, um, those expectations are kind of set out in the clinic setting where I start talking to them about what it is that they're actually looking for. Um, if they're one patients who are really aggressive and wanting to have um, less dependence on glasses, I start to ask them about what kind of things do they do most uh, without glasses now, or what are they really interested in doing most without glasses? Um, after I kind of get a sense of what that is, I start to talk to them about where they are in their stage of their glaucoma. It is imperative with every single glaucoma patient for me to show them their latest visual field, which usually is within that day or within three months of um, that exam, to be able to give them a sense of where they are in terms of their glaucoma. When I show them these visual fields and they know, uh, I explain that this is what a normal visual field looks like. And these areas that are light in color, when we cover that uh, with a, a, a cataract, it's like a film on top of that. And so we will remove the cataract, the areas that are lighter will become brighter, but the areas that are dark or the areas that are these blind spots, these will remain because these are areas of glaucoma uh, that are permanent. Um, uh, typically with these cataract surgeries, I'm often combining them with mixed procedures. So I explain to them why we wanna do a combined procedure to try to help preserve their vision as well as the cataract to improve it but I let them know where they stand. And so then I also talk to them about, um, typically if they're ones that are wanting an extended range of vision, um, I'm usually using um, uh, some of the, uh, the non-diffractive extended depth of focus lenses, um, the Vividi lens. And I explain to them where the strengths are of the lens as well as where some of the uh, weaknesses are in terms of being able to have excellent distance vision excellent intermediate vision and very good functional near vision. I show them the near cards where they can expect uh, typically uh, J3 to even circle J3 to J5. This is what you should expect to be able to see without glasses, um, but there will be need for lent, um, um, some type of reading um, for fine print. And so when they have this idea of what it is that they should be able to see and what their limitations are, I also express to them how I'm really excited to be able to offer them this technology because up until about a year ago, we didn't have this choice for them. They wouldn't even be a candidate for this type of lens. So when they also understand um, the technology is there and that where the, the, the enhancements are, but where their limitations are based on their visual field and based on where it is where they want to function with reading, I really do set up a stage for uh, of what they need to expect afterwards. So when you paint that clear, realistic picture at the end on the other side, 
they're very happy with where they're able to see that extent depth of focus, even with their limitations of the of vision of the, um, the glaucoma. Um, and I've had excellent results, even in pushing the envelope to patients who have not just the mild, but even the moderate, um, even kind of um, leaning towards a little bit of some approaching close to fixation, maybe in the quadrant. And so I've had excellent results and I'm ecstatic to be able to offer that to patients. So I don't have to deal with glaucoma myself. That's one of the few things that I get to turf to, to colleagues like yourself. And so that's a blessing for me that I'm not dealing with the advanced glaucoma or even early glaucoma patient. But I do see lots of corneal pathology. And in our area, we serve as a referral, referral source for cataract surgery uh, that maybe other surgeons just don't feel like dealing with. And so even with people with Fuchs dystrophy and mild retinal pathology. And sometimes it's, you know, the third or fourth retinal detachment with silicone oil and they've got a dense lens. And, you know, they come in thinking, hey, you know, my neighbor had this lens and he doesn't wear glasses at all anymore. Can I get that? And so I think similar to you where you're showing them fields and maybe OCTs of the nerve, I will end up showing patients pictures of their cell count or a, a macular OCT showing some irregularity. And there certainly are some patients where I say, you know what, for you, the best implant is just a monofocal lens. Now you've got other issues with this eye and I really don't think you're gonna get that much benefit from these lenses. And having said that, my very next breath is gonna say, you know, but in some of these patients, we can actually do a pretty good job with presbyopia correcting lenses. As long as we sit down and we talk to those patients to let them know what the real world may look like with that lens. Um, we've done uh, diffractive trifocals. I, I've used the panoptics lens in patients with Fuchs dystrophy, as long as we've corrected the dystrophy. But I sit them down and say, hey, look, the biometry, the measurements for this lens, and I often compare biometry to measuring your foot for a shoe. You know, like we measure the size of your foot, we put you in a shoe. And sometimes you have a, you need a 10.25, but we only have a 10 and a 10 and a half. And so there may be a little adjustment to do afterwards. Or maybe the shoe doesn't fit quite right, or it kind of irritates you once in a while. But we, we sit them down and say, as long as you're willing to work with me, I think I can get you to see, to, you know, get you into a lens implant that fits your visual needs but it may take a little work. It may take a lens exchange. It may take a refractive enhancement if we're just not quite right. Or maybe we should switch to a non-diffractive lens. And I think uh, in my case, I've got the most experience with the Vividi implant, which is the non-diffractive EDOF or extended depth of focus lens. And in those patients who are not real picky about their vision, but still wanna have that extended range, just like you said, we can use that lens and we can really hit the target pretty nicely with those patients. And even in patients, you would typically say this is a non-presbyopia correcting patient, sorry, a non-presbyopia correcting IOL type patient. We can use those implants and have great success as long as the patient is engaged and they know that the physician, myself in this case, is on their side and we want them to see well and we're going to work with them to do whatever it takes to get them where they need to be. So uh, I've been really excited about some of the new technology, unlocking some doors and unlocking some cases that we traditionally would have thought would have been kind of taboo for presbyopia correction, much like your glaucoma patient. Exactly. So uh, it's been a it's been a, a great um, uh, awakening and 
you know, especially with so many patients I've had to say no to, uh, it's just awesome to be able to just open up the doors for so many more people who want that kind of, um, that vision to be able to have it. So in regards to how you, you know, go through your process of evaluating your patients, how do you, how do you go through trying to figure out what their, um, their distance needs are? Like, how do you, what are some of the key questions that you would ask to really find out uh, what they want for their distance, what they really want for their near? So I've been burned before. So we've, uh, we've changed our technique and our questions when we're talking to patients about near. Uh, now distance, it's a pretty rare day that somebody says, no, I really don't want to see distance vision. You know, that we kind of make the assumption that they'd like to see distance and they want to see near. But on rare occasion, you do get that patient who says, you know, I live in front of a computer. I want my intermediate and near. I don't mind putting glasses on for distance. But mostly we ask them questions about what, again, what do you want to do after cataract surgery? Do you want to drive uncorrected? Do you want to see, you know, across the street? And if the answer there is yes, we know that they want their distance vision. But on occasion, in fact, I just had a case come in where the, the patient said, I don't mind wearing my glasses. In fact, I kind of define myself by my glasses. I use them as a fashion statement. I want to see intermediate and near and I don't want to see any halos. He actually said that it was like, it was like a page out of a book. And I'm like, wow, okay. You must've talked to somebody who had surgery, maybe had a little dysphotopsia. Cause those aren't the typical words that somebody would say when they come into the office. Uh, for near activity, I no longer ask patients, do you want to be able to read? Cause I can't tell you how many times that they just, you know, patients just focus on reading, forgetting that what I'm actually talking about is any kind of near activity looking at their watch, maybe looking at the dashboard, looking at themselves in a mirror, drawing, painting, wh whatever the case is. I've had patients come in and say, well, you told me I might have to read with glasses, but I didn't know I'd have to wear them for putting on my makeup or for, you know, looking at my dashboard. So I'm much more careful about, you know, so now what about those near activities, things, arms, distance, and in, do you like to read? Do you use your tablet? Where's your computer? Is, you know, what are you doing up close and what do you want to be able to do uncorrected? And so we are a little bit more careful with our words. And once again, we have our questionnaire and our questionnaire hits a lot of those. So I can often use my questionnaire to say, oh, I see that you're a, uh, you love to fish and you tie flies. Well, do you do that with a high power reader right now? Or, or would you like to try and be able to do that with less dependence on reading glasses? So when you are, you know, tying the fishing knots on your flies, you don't have to reach for your readers. Oh, that sounds great. I'd love that. Okay. Then if you want to do those activities uncorrected, we're probably going to have to use some kind of advanced technology IOL. So for me, it's all about asking about the activities and what activities they want to do uncorrected after that surgery. How about yourself? Yeah, I think that those are um, great questions to ask. I think a lot of the patients that I see have, um, it's, it's really common for patients to be myopic. I have a lot of myopic patients with, uh, in my glaucoma population. And so really kind of asking them, do you read without glasses? Some of them, you know, they say that they'll say, I wear my glasses all the time. And then I say, well, do you take off your glasses to read? And they'll acknowledge that. And it's a, a, a question that I have to ask every myopic patient because um, uh, like you mentioned before, I've gotten burned too, um, knowing that these, uh, a near patient really wants to see well far away, but if you uh, don't uh, explain to them how much the, they might miss their near vision, 
when it goes if they opt for, um, say, uh, more like a, maybe a toric lens to get that really good distance vision, but then lose at that near, uh, they can be really disappointed. So um, asking them about what, what kind of activities that they do at near without glasses or what they would like to do, also focusing on the functional, like your phone, uh, being able to put on your makeup um, so that they get a sense of what they need to be gaining or what they might be missing so that they can make that best decision. You know, I couldn't agree more. And I, I've gotten burned by that myope, you know, especially that moderate myope, minus 250, minus three. And you're talking about needing reading glasses after surgery. And they have no idea what you're talking about because they don't need glasses now to read. And they really don't understand that by, you know, implanting an IOL and giving them distance vision, they're going to they're going to lose that near. They just kind of assume it's it's been there all my life and it's still going to be there after cataract surgery. Exactly. It's a pretty unhappy patient. I mean, it's a really unhappy patient who comes in saying, hey, you didn't tell me that I was going to lose that near. Yeah, I gained distance, but, you know, I sit in my bed at night and I read and now I got to find glasses. And so mm -hmm. making sure that when you look at that chart, you know, because many times when I walk in, the patients are sitting in the exam chair, they don't have their glasses on. And right. if I forget to look at what their manifest refraction was, I could miss a really important cue as to what to talk about with that patient. And if they want to maintain that near vision and have distance, we got to talk about a trifocal or at least an EDOF uh, implant if they don't mind having more of that intermediate versus the near. So yeah. no, that's just one patient. You and I both take care of patients who have more than one problem. Uh, lots of comorbid conditions. You've got glaucoma. We all deal with patients who've had prior corneal refractive surgery, half of which probably forgot they had it. Or they tell me they had LASIK when really they had a PI done, you know, five years ago. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Lots of cornea conditions. What, how do you manage those patients who have the, that cataract and other, other problems that, you know, that may impact your selection of an IOL? Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, there are a number of things that we do in the preoperative examination uh, because uh, as I mentioned before, dealing with so many glaucoma patients, glaucoma patients can have cataracts, and glaucoma patients also have dry eye uh, in order to deal, uh, also to put in the mix to have to be able to evaluate and deal with it. So um, sometimes it can be extensive exams because kind of going one by one by one, they have the cataract, where are they? What kind of um, expectation do they have? Um, but first finding out, okay, where is your stage of glaucoma? Are you controlled? Are you not controlled? Are you able to, um, uh, are, is the uh, drops affecting your um, uh, compliance? Is the drops, are the drops affecting your, your corneal surface? Um, is this something where we want to look to see if we can remove drops? Are you a mixed candidate? What's your angle anatomy? What kind of mixed procedure can we consider for you? Um, and then also uh, the dry eye. If there's a certain level of um, um, uh, epithelial defects or SPK on the surface, um, if there's mobility gland dysfunction, these are things that we still need to address prior because they can have effect on the postoperative outcomes. And so we might have, be suggesting um, if they're not using artificial tears, punctal plugs, vitamins, um, sometimes some of the technologies to help with um, increased hypomine um, gland dysfunction, um, like um, uh, lipoflow, ILUX, those types of procedures. Um, these are all part of the mix. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit of a, a, a little bit of some 
uh, a lot of information for the patient, but we do tackle it one by one. So we do need to address the ocular surface. And sometimes by um, adding the MIG procedures, we are because we're reducing the medications, helping the ocular surface in that way. Uh, we might need to change some of the medications in terms of the drops, making them more preservative free or have softer preservatives in them um, in terms of their coma drops and interim while they're leading up to surgery to help um, uh, preoperatively with that service. Um, so there's a, a number of different things that we do need to, uh, to look at um, in addition to trying to pick uh, what lens would be good for them. We deal with the same stuff and, uh, you know, Priya Gupta as well as Bill Trattler have both got published papers showing that somewhere around 80% of our patients who come in just for cataract surgery also have a comorbid condition, in this case, dry eye. So I think across the board, uh, if you're not screening for dry eye in your cataract patients, you're probably not doing your best job. Uh, because so many patients have it, even ones who don't complain. And if you want to be implanting new technology IOLs, whether they're diffractive or non-diffractive, you know, if you miss that dry eye patient, you're going to end up with some unhappy patients. And okay. the, you know, it's amazing. You know, five, six years ago, the the dry eye talks at AAO and ASCRS were, you know, moderately attended. And now those those preoperative optimization talks that that lecture hall is pretty much packed because people are really catching on to the fact that that a better ocular surface means better results and happier patients. And so when they can really relate that treatment to improved outcomes, now it really starts to hit home to almost everybody, even if you don't consider yourself a cornea specialist, a glaucoma specialist or an ocular surface specialist. Okay. Uh, what we're often dealing with as well is the cornea conditions. I can't tell you how many times we catch somebody who's had refractive surgery and doesn't even tell us or they've forgotten that they had it because it was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago and they've just, it's just out of their mind. Um, mm -hmm. We're lucky enough to have a Pentacam in all of our offices and we actually use a computer program to help us with our, our surgical planning. And in that program, it actually will look at the goal strand ratio. And if it sees an unusual goal strand ratio, it prompts me to ask the patient, hey, have you had LASIK or PRK? And I mm -hmm. bet you two or three times a month, that warning pops up and I say, wait a minute, you know, the computer sees an unusual shape in your cornea. Did you by chance have laser vision correction some time ago? You're right, I did doc. I completely <laughs> forgot about it. It was yeah. 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, then, of course, they can't remember if they were nearsighted or farsighted. You've got to figure that out. And that can be a challenge of itself. But making sure you're screening for patients with refractive surgery is really important. And a few years ago, that may have been a no-fly zone for presbyopia correcting IOLs. But now, I think with improved biometry, we use intraoperative aberometry for all of our patients. We've done actually very well with both the trifocal of pan optics is, is the, the lens I've got the most experience with, as well as the Vividi or the, you know, the non-diffractive EDOF lens in both hyperopic and myopic LASIK. Admittedly, I tend to stay away from it in patients with RK. RK is just very unreliable and their corneas are all irregular. And in fact, the cornea probably itself is multifocal. So I still shy away from the RK patient, maybe a four cut. Uh, I may have a lens or two in, but for the most part, those are still monofocals or possibly torix. Mm -hmm. Other cornea problems, a real common thing in our office is going to be Fuchs dystrophy. We probably see five, six patients a day with Fuchs. Some of them want that cornea fixed. Some of them it's pretty mild, but they still want to get the, the cataract taken out. So they ask us to do it just in case that cornea decompensates. 
I don't love diffractive IOLs in patients with Gutata. Uh, no matter how good that lens is, I just don't think they work that well. However, the, the non-diffractive Vividi lens may be a bit more forgiving there. But like I said before, it works best when the eyes as healthy as possible. So I always recommend, if anything, fixing the cornea first and then doing the cataract. That way their biometry stabilizes and their keratometry stabilizes, or we've done them combined, especially when the dystrophy was mild enough that maybe the gatata were causing problems, but the cornea wasn't so swollen that I thought it was really disrupting or distorting our keratometry values. And we've gotten away with it with happy patients. But again, the patients have to know that we're invested in their care and that we're gonna do everything we can and we're on their side. We want them to do well and we'll do whatever it takes to get them to the endpoint. And admittedly, you know, we probably have an exchange rate of about 5% where, you know, the, the toric IOL was misaligned because the biometry was a little bit improper, uh, or maybe we didn't get quite the right axial length or, or their keratometry changed when we fixed the cornea. But I'm not ashamed to say, hey, look, you've got other problems. We're going to go back and fix the lens. We do it and the patients are happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I could say about my, my population of patients, they often know that they do have these other issues. And so they do tend to be patients, um, for the most part, that our understanding of what their limitations are, are kind of um, to that more extent of being grateful that they have the opportunity, if they can even be a candidate for something like that. So you're right. I mean, there, it's not um, that every single patient has, is a candidate for the non non-diffractive IOL, presbyopic IOL, um, but there's a lot more than there used to be. And I think in terms of um, being able to manage the glaucoma, it's always um, in, uh, the first and foremost to make sure that the glaucoma is being managed. And so whether it's the driving force because they're uncontrolled or whether it's the um, secondary, we're just trying to lessen your drops and help your ocular surface, um, the, de- the glaucoma um, management has to be with all the uh, diagnostics uh, in order to figure out um, what the best solution will be. So in terms of um, your patient population, because your yours, um, you probably have more healthier eyes that you're dealing with than I do, and um, might use more of the um, diffractive technologies. How do you talk to your patients about dysphotopsia? Uh, what are your, your strategies for being able to um, uh, be able to ask and figure out who's going to be uh, acceptable for that or who might be more bothered by it? Well, you know, I, truth be told, I have no idea who's going to see those dysphotopsias. And the discussion has gotten much easier over the years. Uh, with the newer technology, that, you know, the new trifocals, um, you know, the new diffractive trifocals, the, uh, the discussion is much easier. The, the dysphotopsia profile is much, much better, but not gone. And so whenever I'm talking to somebody about a trifocal, I will tell them up front that they likely will see some, some haloing. And so I say, you know, when you stop at a red light, when you look at that light, you may see the red light, then you may see a ring around that and a ring around that. And, you know, many patients don't notice it, but if you do, it's normal. And typically that will, that will get better over time. And whether you just get used to it or you neuroadapt to it, you know, I'm not sure, but most patients don't complain about that for an extended period of time after surgery. And if you do see it and it bothers you and doesn't go away, we'll do everything in our power to take it away. But dysphotopsias are not unique to diffractive IOLs. I actually talk about dysphotopsias, positive and negative dysphotopsias to almost every patient because so many patients will see a negative dysphotopsia after perfectly done cataract surgery. And so I tell them that they will see a dark arc 
potentially on the outside of the eye. And if they see that, it's completely normal. And about 85 to 90% of those arcs will go away within the first couple of weeks of surgery. So I think staying away and not telling your patients about a dysphotopsia is probably the wrong thing. I'd rather tell them that they likely will see it. And then when they don't see it, they're pleasantly surprised as opposed to seeing it and thinking that something is wrong and you get this phone call, oh my gosh, what's going on? I see this halo or I see this arc, you know, something must be wrong. Instead, we say, no, that's completely normal. In fact, that means that probably the implant's in the right spot or everything is just fine. It'll likely go away. If it doesn't go away, we'll talk about it again in a week or two and we'll go over some strategies to improve it. Now, our last strategy to improve it is take the implant out. And I gotta say, we, we used to do lens exchanges like crazy. Now, Full disclosure, as a referral source, we do lots of lens exchanges sent in for patients who don't tolerate dysphotopsias. So I, I was very cautious in doing my own diffractive IOLs because we were taking so many out. But truth be told, most patients do very well with diffractive technology. And with the newer IOLs, it is an unusual day that we are removing the IOL. And I tell you, many times when we do exchange a lens for dysphotopsias, when that lens comes out and the monofocal or the torque goes in, the patients miss the near vision. And very often when they come in saying, I want both of these implants out, we take one out, they realize what life is like with real presbyopia, and they want me to leave that second lens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, an occurrence that I've seen also. I think that, you know, with my, uh, because of the patient population I have with glaucoma and already having issues relating to decreased contrast sensitivity, I'm always very, um, very wary of putting in lenses that I feel that they might have potential for a lot of uh, glare, halos, or starbursts. So um, I've really been uh, minimal with putting in um, any type of trifocal lens or um, refractive, refractive technology. But I have, um, like I mentioned, had really good success with the non-refracted extended depth of focus lens uh, for my patients who want extra. And I haven't had the kind of complaints that I um uh, that I would see with uh, some of the other lenses. I particularly have had my, um, a lot of my um, optometrists who see some of the, my post-op patients say to me how they really, they noticed a significant lack of uh, complaints about glare and starbursts and, and, and halos. And so that's something that I'm really excited about being able to offer um, those patients. And I've also um, found some benefit in uh, using some of the um, other technology that's available now with TORC lenses um, and the uh, use of iHands uh, technology, IOLs, and um, being able to find some um, uh, some extended uh, focus range there, uh, not necessarily all the way to the near vision, but with um, the um, distance and intermediate and having some success with that for my TORC patients who I want to be able to give them a little bit more. So my experience with iHance is really quite limited. Um, the, you know, the iHance is a, a beautiful lens and it does have a, an extended range. It's not really an EDOF lens, but you do get that, that, that plus, that additional benefit to it. And the TORC is a beautiful lens and the optic is great on that lens, that, that IOL. So um, but admittedly, I'm a little bit lacking in experience with that. So, you know, I'd like to hear your, your experience and that you've been happy with that implant. Yeah, I, I've been happy with it because one of the things that's really great is it, it has um, uh, really good uh, vision within uh, not just in bright light, but also in dim light. And that's really important with 
glaucoma patient population that already has issues with that contrast sensitivity and lack thereof. And so um, I've been happy with it. They, the, the vision is clear. Um, they're able to, and I don't always counsel them about the intermediate. I some more torque lens of where I use it um, or standard um, eye lens with uh, um, uh, the second uh, for the late uh, LRIs, but um, they've been very happy in, in noticing that uh, intermediate um, and kind of seeing it as that plus. Um, so it's something that I, I like to use in my glaucoma patient population um, and seeing good results with that. So the, the glaucoma patients used to be an absolute no-fly zone. And I think both of us have probably noticed that with some of the newer technology, presbyopia correcting IOLs, it, it does open the doors to some patients who were previous, you know, non-candidates. But there's got to be some patients out there, you still say, nope, this is not going to be a presbyopia correcting, you know, kind of patient. Um, who are those patients to you? Who, who are you still avoiding? And, uh, it, and how do you screen for those patients or, or how do you talk to those patients? Well, first and foremost, I think that the desire needs to be there. I mean, you're, you you want to put these lenses in the patients who desire to have less uh, spectacle dependence. So if there are someone who says that they are okay wearing glasses, they don't mind wearing glasses, um, the drive might not be there. And so um, I think that's really important to be able to pull out of the patient if they even are really wanting that. So I like to hear the patient's uh, desire uh, to be there. And then also um, in terms of the uh, patients, if they have a lot of um, uh, pathology and especially if that pathology is, is affecting their central vision outside of you believe is just the cataract, then they may not be the best patient. So if I have a glaucoma patient that's really advanced uh, disease, um, and that uh, the visual field is um, uh, looking uh, very uh, uh, damaged in uh, just about every quadrant, they're not going to be a candidate for this type of lens. Um, I have, in my experience, um, been as bold to put in um, a um, uh, toric lens in a glaucoma patient who um, has a very stable um, uh, central area of vision uh, with a significant amount of peripheral loss, understanding that with its lens, um, they wanted, they had a strong desire to be able to do a certain activity at distance without glasses, understanding their limitations with the glaucoma, uh, but also understanding that um, this would have allowed them to be able to have that spectacle dependence at that, uh, at that area um, of vision. And that patient um, has had stable glaucoma and those areas of uh, encroached um, um, you know, central uh, vision, but it's been stable and he's been able to do those activities. But those areas, I, I have pushed the envelope to do that, but not quite yet with these newer lenses. Uh, and, and because of the um, uh, just needing to have a little bit more um, ability to uh, test that envelope, uh, I have been testing it and I've been surprised about how patients can do, but I, I do have a limit in terms of people who have really bad glaucoma, especially if it's affected their central vision. Um, and then also if, um, uh, if patients are uncontrolled with glaucoma and I don't feel that they are a candidate for, let's say I have a patient who I think uh, needs to have some type of um, uh, glaucoma treatment that is a little bit more um, uh, uh, a little bit more involved than just a mixed procedure. Let's say they need to have a subconjunctival stent and um, I, I need to do a, want to do a combined procedure. They may be someone who has to um, not be able to have that type of lens um, because of the inability to uh, have the stable measurements to 
uh, put in that kind of lens and then also do another procedure um, like a Zen that may uh, change the, uh, the measurements and then change their outcome. Uh, so sometimes uh, those patients are not going to be a, a good candidate. Um, there are times uh, when um, the patient may also uh, just have just a lot of pathology. Let's say they have glaucoma, um, but then they also have um, diabetes and they have um, an ERM and then they have ocular surface disease. It just might be too much. I just might say your best bet is to go with a monofocal lens and just try to have that um, uh, a good stable outcome uh, for both eyes uh, at both distances. So um, those are the kind of patients that I would still be a little bit more hesitant to. And then also we have to be um, cognizant of patients who might have expectations that are too high. If I get a sense that the patient might be a little bit too overly um, demanding or really type A personality and may not be able to get the kind of outcome that I hear that they want, um, I might just say, I don't know if you're a good candidate for that. I wouldn't recommend um, that type of um, uh, advanced technology lens. Um, I typically am uh, not, uh, it's, it's a, far cry for me to shy away from doing a torque lens um, because with the, the monofocal profile of those lenses and just being able to get them really good vision at that distance, um, I think that that is good for any patient with their level of, um, um, uh, of pathology. Um, but um, there is uh, those limitations that I would have if the expectations are too high for what I would think of extended depth of focus lens. You know, I second your your comments, especially with patients with severe ocular surface disease. I, those are probably our most challenging patients in deciding what to do because we just can't get good biometry. I mean, they're not going to do well. If, if so, the number one reason for an unhappy multifocal patient is is residual refractive error, and number two is ocular surface disease. And we already talked about how important it was to screen those patients and treat those patients. But some patients, no matter what you do, will still have dry eye. And we can't get stable biometry on those, especially keratometry. And so it takes a lot for me to say you shouldn't even do a toric IOL, but I often can't even figure out where to put that torque because we get so many, so many differences in keratometry every time that patient comes in. So for me, that's a monofocal patient. Mm -hmm. Irregular astigmatism, whether it's from RK or keratoconus, I'm not going to offer that patient a diffractive IOL. They're just not going to get the benefit out of it. They're still wearing gas perm lenses and things of that nature. So I, I just don't see the, the point in using a multifocal IOL in those patients. Severe zonulopathy, I wouldn't say I've never done it. Uh, we have suture fixated, both toric and haptic fixated bifocal implants, but I certainly wouldn't recommend it as a general rule, right? I, you stay with those patients because you're going to get decentration, tilt, dislocation of the lens. It just doesn't make sense. Stick with your belt and suspenders for those patients. And that difficult personality patient that, that you mentioned, it's a challenge for me to try and hit their expectations. And sometimes you don't. Again, I, I think that the personality there is a relative contraindication. You are in a uphill battle and you're going to spend a lot of time in that chair. And sometimes mm -hmm. it is easier just to say, you know what, let's just do a monofocal, you know, <laughs> but it is that personal challenge to get that patient to the point where they say, you know what, you did what you said you're going to do. And, and when we get that patient, and it is not every patient, it makes you feel really good. You know, yeah. you took that patient that probably wasn't a good candidate and you made them happy. And that makes me happy. I, I don't care about the the conversion rate. I just want patients to come to see me to feel like they are they are better 
because they saw me and we treated them. So they, they came to see me, they had a problem, they left and that problem was fixed and hopefully fixed better than they expected it to be. And so when yeah. I can achieve that in a difficult patient, I feel like I've really done my job well. Um, but there certainly are some patients out there who are not good candidates and we would stay away from those because it just, it's gonna cost the patients money, they're not gonna be happy and it's a lot of chair time. And some patients just don't want them. You know, not every patient gets a presbyopia correcting eye well. We yeah. talk to almost every patient about it and some just say, you know what, I just don't have the money to do it. I'll just stick with the monofocal lens. I never tell those patients that are getting a poor quality lens or I, I don't like the government issue kind of thing. I say, hey, look, that's fine. You're still gonna see better. You may have to wear your glasses, but we're not putting junk inside the eye. We're still gonna use a high quality implant. It'll last forever. You're just going to have to wear some glasses after that surgery. If that's not the end of the world for you, it's fine with me. Exactly. Exactly. And I agree with you. It's, it's nice to have um, those patient uh, outcomes where it's a slam dunk. For me, if I can get their glaucoma under control, their uh, vision improved, and a better corneal surface, that's like the, <laughs> the, the trilogy of, uh, uh, of an awesome outcome. So I think that we had a um, great discussion talking about how um, there's some complex situations and how we consider um, how to get the best outcome visually for these patients uh, using presbyopia corrective lenses. I'm uh, really excited about the new technologies that we have that have been able to expand our usage of these lenses for the patients. I hope that this program has helped you to uh, get a better sense of how to manage some of these more difficult patients, how to help with uh, settling their expectations so that um, you can get the best outcomes uh, for these patients who want presbyopia correction. Uh, we are encouraging you to get even more details by watching the whole entire presbyopia management course series uh, and also reading the um, CRST uh, supplement that's entitled uh, Matching Today's Presbyopia Correcting Innovations with Specific Patient Needs. We thank you for your time today and hope you enjoyed the program. Thanks for listening.